Uh, as a church, we uh, love uh, declaring our, our praise to God, but uh, also uh, believe that uh, he wants to speak to us and encourage us. Um, and I just want to pray before we do anything else and invite him to come and do that. Heavenly Father, uh, I want to pray right now that you would um, open our minds uh, and our hearts to receive your word. Uh, Thank you that you are a living, active God whose word itself is living and active. As we open up the pages of the Bible, I want to ask you that it would come alive in a fresh way to us. I want to pray that uh, wherever we're at, whatever our experience of you, uh, we would hear from you, we'd be encouraged by you, we'd be guided more by you. Uh, God, please speak to us and please give us ears to hear. Amen. Well, uh, as a church, we are currently working our way through Luke's gospel, uh, Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And we've been doing it for a little while now uh, and have got as far as chapter 11, where Jesus teaches his closest friends, his disciples, how to pray. Now, I think it's probably fair to say most people in the room would agree that prayer is extremely common. Most people pray at some point in their lives, usually if at no other point, uh, when they hit a problem and they've tried everything else and they're really desperate and they think, well, let's just arrow up a prayer and if God's there, God, please help. Most people at some point in their lives pray. Prayer is extremely common and it's part of virtually every religion, whether it's Muslims bowing down five times a day or more like uh, Buddhist meditation. Prayer is extremely common. Prayer is everywhere. It's like we feel this instinctive need or desire to connect with something or someone bigger than us. Now, Although prayer is extremely common, it's also extremely varied. There are differences in who people think they're praying to, how they think prayer works, what they think it achieves, what we should be praying for, how we're to go about it, and so on. Extremely common, also extremely varied. And the other thing to say is that, I think if we're being completely honest, a lot of us also find prayer extremely difficult at times. It's not that the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about prayer. It's just that a lot of us in the room know we should pray more than we do, and a lot of the time feel guilty that we don't. So, all of that means that I've got a pretty difficult task today, because I don't want to burden you with a whole lot of guilt and condemnation, like the Bible says you should be praying more and you'll go away feeling really condemned. I don't want to get up here and tell you what you kind of already know. I mean, it's, it's not like I could teach on prayer in such a way that anyone in the room would be left going, wow, do you mean we're actually supposed to talk to God? That's not kind of headline news to a lot of us. We know that already. 
really the bottom line is we need to be taught how to pray. I mean, left to myself, uh, I, I will get it wrong at times. Uh, I'll have my own ideas of what God's like and what I should be asking for and what he ought to give me. And I'll, uh, I'll go away and I, I'll, I'll try for a bit and then eventually run out of steam and be left feeling pretty bad about myself, pretty disillusioned with the whole thing. So I need to be taught how to pray. And the disciples around Jesus felt exactly the same thing. They'd been watching the way that Jesus prayed and it absolutely blew their minds. Here was someone with a connection to God, the like of which they had never ever seen before. Here was someone who was not only passionate about prayer, but saw amazing, remarkable things happen as a result of praying. And so one day, having observed Jesus, their friend, go off to a private place once again and pray, one of his disciples, one of his closest friends, plucks up the courage and says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And I want us to have a look at Jesus' response. Luke 11, verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, I'm guessing many of us grew up receiving or reciting these words in school assemblies. I don't know if they still do it nowadays, but my generation and older, we we kind of did that a lot in school assemblies. Uh, What we saw last week, however, was that uh, this model prayer of Jesus was never intended to just be repeated parrot fashion in a kind of mindless, thoughtless kind of way. Uh, It was more given by Jesus to us uh, as a framework or a launch pad for our praying. And so what we're doing over the next few weeks, couple of months maybe, is uh, slowly unpacking this prayer uh, word by word, line by line, and working out how to apply it to our lives today in such a way that it injects new life into our relationship with God, infuses us all over again about prayer, fuels our desire to pray. And really, all I want to do this morning is simply focus in on the first word of this prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. It's a simple enough word but I'd suggest it changes absolutely everything. When you pray, and the first word you utter is Father, that says a tremendous amount about the relationship you're in and the sort of prayer you are going to pray. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but when you approach anyone you are already making assumptions about the basis on which you're approaching them. And the basis determines the level of the exchange, the level of the conversation. If you want a deeper interaction, you need a deeper basis to go in on. Now, if you strip it all back, really, there are just two basic ways of relating to God. You you can have a business relationship or a family relationship. In a business relationship, the basis is, I have something for you and you have something for me. 
in a family relationship, the basis is what I am to you. In a business relationship, the the basis is performance. You perform for me, I perform for you. In a family relationship, the basis is more one of a commitment. It's a permanent, committed relationship. Let me try and illustrate a bit more what I mean by this. Again, generally speaking, there are two ways you can live in someone's house. Now, uh, the more pedantic amongst us might be thinking, oh no, there are many more ways. I mean, you could be a squatter uh, or you could be a house guest. Just don't go there. Kind of play along with me, okay? Basically, two ways you can live in someone else's house. Either as a lodger or as a family member. Now, if you're living in someone else's house as a lodger, you can have a pretty good relationship with your landlord as long as you keep paying the rent and respect the property, as long as you keep all the rules and as long as the landlord fixes things when they're broken and doesn't suddenly kind of demand you pay significantly more rent, you can have a pretty good relationship. So there's a basis for approach. But the interaction, the whole relationship is mechanical. It's all about the exchange of goods and services. At the end of the day, it's conditional. It's based on performance, both ways. Whereas a family relationship is based on what I am. One has to do with your doing. One has to do with your being. And so, if you're living in your parents' house, it's a very different setup. As a lodger, you're accepted if you perform. As a child, you're, uh, you're accepted unconditionally. And so you perform. Two completely different ways of relating. Now, the choice is yours. You can either approach God, if you want to, on a, bu- a business basis or on a family basis. A religious person effectively says, God, come into my life and be my landlord. You do your bit for me, you provide me with what I need, and I'll do mine for you. It's more like a business transaction. Whereas a Christian is someone who says, God, come into my life and be my father. I'm not worthy of your favor. But Jesus Christ has lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And on the basis of what he has done, be my father. They are two completely different ways of relating to God. And the way you can tell where you stand is by looking in on your prayer life. If you pray, do you pray out of a sense of duty? Because you feel really you ought to. It's the kind of thing you should do. Do you seldom pray? Because you feel, really, it's pretty pointless. Uh, either you don't need God or he's disinterested in you. It's like, I don't deserve anything from God and I don't even know why I'm bothering to pray. God never comes through for me. I guess I must just be this awful, terrible person. Is that your prayer life? Anxious, cold, impersonal, mechanical, or is there warmth there? Is there life? Is it full of faith? Is it confident? Is it loving? Is it personal? 
If you have any relationship with God, is your relationship one of a lodger or that of a child? You're beginning to see how critical this is. Jesus doesn't start this model prayer, our king, although he is. He doesn't start it, our creator, although he is. In fact, he doesn't even start it, our friend. And you know why? Because even friendship is a kind of hybrid between business and family. Even friendship is based to some degree on performance. I'm guessing that maybe some of you might be struggling with me talking about family because your experience of family isn't brilliant. But even the messiness and brokenness of family life proves the strength of what I'm trying to show you. A lot of us still do have some kind of dealings with brothers or sisters, children and parents, despite their behavior. I mean, if they were anything other than family, we wouldn't have anything to do with them anymore. Why do you still have dealings with them? Because they're family. He's still my brother. She's still my mum. He's still my son. What is that? Jesus doesn't say, when you go to God, say our friend. He doesn't say, go our king or our creator. That's all true. God is our friend. He is our king. He is our creator. But Jesus says to start by calling him Father. Because understanding that will control everything else about your relationship with God. Understanding that you are an adopted child of God is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Listen to what John 1 verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you are a child of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Think about it. Adoption isn't the result of the child's effort. It's completely down to the parent's choice. An adoption isn't a change in nature or behavior. Hopefully that that will come over time, but ultimately it's a legal change. You you take on a new name, you have new parents. If you misbehave, you're not going to be sent home. This is your home, regardless of how you behave. When you adopt someone, you know what you're saying? I promise to regard you with all the commitment, all of the love, all of the acceptance that I would have towards my own natural child. And Jesus says as much in John 17 verse 23. He prays to his Father for all those who would come to believe in him down through the generations. And he says... I want you to love them even as you have loved me. 
even as you have loved me. How much do you think the Father loves Jesus? How much? Well, that's how much God the Father loves you if you've been adopted into his family. He loves you with the same commitment, the same desire, the same passion, the same acceptance as he loves Jesus, his own son. He says, you are now my sons and my daughters. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I mean, come on, that's just too easy. Well, that shows that you still think of yourself effectively more like a lodger. You you think of relating to God as though he was your landlord. You say, well, no, 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 no. I can't believe it could happen just like that. Surely I need to work for it. Again, that shows that perhaps you have more of a business understanding of relationship with God. And that's the reason Jesus is bringing this whole thing of prayer up. He, he wants to show you that the big difference between a Christian and someone who maybe claims to be a Christian but doesn't have a genuine relationship with God. The, the, the difference is down to relationship. The, the difference is how they relate to God. It's not about being religious. It's not about attending church once a week. It's not about being good enough or earning our way to God. It's not about being able to pay him back for what he's done. It's all about seeing Jesus, not as an example we should follow, but more as our substitute. He who didn't sin took on my sin and bore the punishment that I deserved. And in exchange, I now stand as one who is completely without sin. I'm forgiven. I'm free to approach God with no condemnation, absolutely no guilt. Not on account of my performance, not on account of my hard work. No, I'm an adopted child. Now, if you understand that, Jesus says, here's how you pray. You need to start by saying, Father, saturate yourself with the truth that you've been adopted into God's family family by his act, not yours. He's as committed to you as he could ever be to his own natural son. Every time you pray, that has got to be uppermost in your mind. And if it is, That's the fuel that fires access right into the presence of God. That's the thing that changes prayer from being a thing of duty to a thing of absolute delight. That's the thing that propels you into prayer with confidence and boldness and enthusiasm and faith, regardless of how good or bad your performance has been lately. Because it's not about your performance It's all about your place in the family. If God is your father, then you're welcome. Now, I've got two sons. I think it's fair to say we've got a pretty good relationship. But here's what I know. I'll I'll be straight. There has never been a day yet 
where they have been completely perfect. I can't remember a day when they haven't done something or said something that's broken the tranquil, idyllic atmospheres that we dream of having in our home. But here's what I know. My kids still want to hang around. Haven't left home yet. Still want to talk, still want to play, still want to at times jump on top of me, which is getting more of an issue the bigger they get. Want to do all of that even in the midst of their shortcomings, because they can feel It's like they know I delight, I love, I enjoy, I'm so glad they're my sons. They can feel that, they sense that. And unless you've put me on some kind of pedestal, like, well, he's the church leader, so of course it's like that for him. By no means am I the perfect father. Do I get grumpy? And it's hard to believe. Yes. Sometimes, do I just want to be left alone just to close my eyes for a second? Yes. But can they feel overall I have this legitimate and honest delight in them? Absolutely. And so they want to come, they want to talk, they want to play, they want to be around because they feel the delight. They know they're accepted. And that's really the place I'm wanting to try and get you to in your relationship with God. I'm kind of hoping this whole question of, does God really love me? Could he ever accept me? Surely he wouldn't enjoy being with me. Those questions get removed from the equation once and for all. In the words of 1 John 3 verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Get that, and suddenly you'll be able to pray the rest of the Lord's Prayer as Jesus intended. For starters, you'll never really be able to adore God the way Jesus goes on to tell us to without grasping that, first of all, God is our Father, There's a sense of wonder. It's a miracle that I could ever have this kind of relationship. Blows my mind. And slowly but surely you find praise welling up inside you. I mean, it's impossible not to want to thank him for that. But if you see yourself more as a lodger, praise will always be unnatural to you. Yeah, you'll be able to sit down with your list of requests, spend a few minutes asking God for all your needs, but you're going to find it very hard to praise Him for any length of time. As long as you relate to God more in business terms, praise will mean nothing to you. Adoration will be completely absent from your life. You see, the relationship in your thinking is all about your performance. You get what you think you deserve. You see... Lodgers believe they've been paying the rent. And so when they get an answer to prayer, they put it down to the fact that they're a moral person, they're a decent person, they've obeyed all the rules, they've been working really hard. God owes them. If you play it out like that, there's no room for thanks, other than in a formal, polite kind of way. But when a Christian gets a prayer answered, 
They're like, incredible. Why would he do such a thing for me? But he has, and he will continue to do so. I don't deserve it, could never earn it. It's all down to his amazing grace. And so there's praise. It's like, if you worked hard all months, and at the end of the month got handed your paycheck, you don't say, wow, what a miracle. See what great love has been lavished upon me by my employer. No, 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 you say, at last, I've worked hard for that. If there's no sense of wonder in your relationship with God, if you struggle to motivate yourself to praise Him, that would suggest you're more a lodger than a family member. Without Father, there is no hallowed be your name. And it's the same with the rest of this prayer. Sure, we'll, we'll hang out and bring our request to God regardless of how we view Him. But if we view Him as Father, it absolutely transforms the way we do it. Straight after giving us this model prayer, Jesus gives a number of stories, illustrations, examples showing how we're to keep persisting, persevering in our prayers. It's like, if you don't get an answer straight away, keep on asking. Persevere. Please, don't give up. Now, where does that kind of boldness come from? How could Jesus press people to pray shamelessly and constantly? I'll tell you why. It comes from viewing God as your Father. I mean, think about it. The, the only person who would dare to wake a king up at 3 a.m. just to ask for a glass of water is his child. Probably even his wife wouldn't dare to ask. His child would. What would be impertinent and rude for anyone else is natural and normal and acceptable behavior for a child with their parent. No other religion dares to tell us to go after God and keep on at Him, persevering until He answers. Every other religion says, you can't treat Him like that. He's too great, you're too small. It's only when we understand that He's our Father, that we can not only bring Him our requests, but keep on asking and with real confidence. Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. Bother him. Give him no rest. Pour your heart out to him. Why? Because he's our father. He loves us. He wants to give good gifts to his children. And if he's our father, then we'll trust him. We'll trust him, even when he doesn't answer as we think he should. I mean, a lodger expects to understand their landlord. If they don't understand them, that's a problem. A child doesn't expect to understand their parent all the time. But if they're good parents, children trust them. Yeah, they get frustrated at times, angry even with their parents from time to time. But a child understands in their heart of hearts that a good father will either give them what they ask or else will give them what they should have asked if they knew everything their father knows. Children understand 
they're not going to understand everything their father does. But if he's a good father, they'll learn to trust him. However, if you're more of a lodger, you won't keep asking God for stuff you feel you have no right to. And you won't trust God when he says no either. Won't be an attitude of praise. Won't be persistent asking. Won't be a whole lot of peace and rest. Be an absence. There won't be an absence of worry. A guy called John Owen, who's around in the 17th century, he said this Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. Your greatest need and mine is to see God as Father. He's way better than we think. And so we need to change the way we think. We we need to adjust our thinking to take in the fact that God is extremely good, extremely kind, extremely gracious, extremely generous, extremely loving, totally and utterly committed to us as his children. Tragically, there are so many people who have had such a rotten upbringing that their whole concept of God being their father terrifies and makes them want to run from him and not to him. But it's not too good to be true. It's so good it is true. He's perfect in every single way. He's the Father we've all longed for, whether we've had a brilliant one or a bad one. Which I guess is why Jesus says, don't try and come to God on any other basis than as your Father. So let's do that right now. Let's pray together.